Ecclesiastes chapter 11, please. Okay, balcony and first floor needs these sheets. Okay, thank you. All right. I need you to get out a pen or a pencil as well, please. Find a pen or pencil. If you need that, raise your hands. If you need a pen or pencil, raise your hands. Because you're going to do an exercise with me today. You're not simply going to listen to me. You will do something this morning as well. All right? Now, you've undoubtedly heard a lot as a Christian, if you've been in church a while, about death, that Jesus conquered death. We have eternal life and we believe in him. But as a result of that, I think very often we, don't, we also miss another biblical teaching on death, which is very important. And it's reflecting on death as the path to life. And it's a big theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think believers very often do not look at this because we emphasize one aspect of the truth about Christ's victory over death and we miss the teaching about how death is supposed to inform us about life. And so today I want to lay a, the teaching of Ecclesiastes. We're in a series on Ecclesiastes, four parts. Next week I'll finish it. But this third part... I want to really focus in on this backdrop of death that the Ecclesiastes gives and how it's meant to change the way we live today. All right? So I pray the hand of God on all of us this day as we open that scripture. Now, you will probably read or hear about Ebenezer Scrooge in the next couple of weeks. And I love the story, and I'm sure you do too. But we forget that Ebenezer Scrooge was transformed by his confrontation with death. Remember, he's got these dreams and these ghosts of past, present, and future coming and appear to him. And he sees himself dead. And he sees people after he's died in the town. They could care less that he's, that he's dead. And then they're, then they're fighting over his material possessions. And then he actually goes to his funeral and realizes nobody even cares. And then at, at the end of this little journey, he goes to the cemetery and he reads his, his tombstone. And it's at that point that he's, as he looks at the way he's lived his life, he is completely transformed. It's almost like he is born again. And he changes the way he lives. Another famous story that's very similar to that, and I can pick a lot of them, is um, uh, from War and Peace by Tolstoy. And I'm sure many of you have read that 2,000-page novel. And one of the main characters is a guy named Pierre. And Pierre is a wealthy uh, man from a wealthy family in Russia. And... Uh, in the first few hundred pages, his, his life is very empty and purposeless, and uh, he's wandering around trying to find himself. He's very lost. And, uh, but uh, there's a pivotal moment when he is captured by Napoleon and their troops, and he's sentenced to death by the firing squad. And he is the sixth person in line to be executed. So imagine, one by one, they go up, he watches them get executed. Number two, number three, number four, number five. All five get executed. He's next. He gets up, they're about to execute him, and for some, you know, he gets, he gets reprieved. He gets set free. And the rest of the book, we see Pierre full of zest, full of, full of purpose for life, grasping on the relationships differently now and enjoying nature, but he's got a whole different life because he was transformed by this confrontation with death. Now, Ecclesiastes really does the same thing, and I'm, I'm sure you know people that had brushes with death, and maybe you're one of them. We have some folks here who've had some close calls. You're changed by something like that forever if you respond to it well. Notice the if. Now, Ecclesiastes, now you, what you have in front of you is what I call a, a, um, a, a wish basket and an epitaph. And you're going to do an exercise at the end. Do not do it now. 
And uh, you'll notice there's a, 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 and I'm going to give you a few minutes, here lies, this, this would be like your tombstone. And if you put your name there, you know, and then what, what would you want to write on your tombstone about yourself? What do you want to be remembered for? How, how do you want people to, to think of your life after you die? And then a wish basket is meant to be like, what, what are some things that you want to do before you die? That you want to accomplish, you want to be? Uh, and it's, it's an exercise I will lead you in at the end of the message. So get your pen and pencil handy. And uh, because today's message is about death. It's a meditation on earthly death. Because uh, it, it, it releases a, a lot of anxiety when we think about it. But it's meant to be a school for us to lead us to maturity. And that's why Ecclesiastes has it all over the book. And as Kierkegaard once wrote, who was a Christian from uh, Denmark, he said, the self must be broken in order for the true self to emerge. And death breaks us like nothing else. And uh, so I like what Martin Luther once wrote. He goes, I taste death every day as if it were present, and only then can you really be alive. Because the thrust of teaching of Scripture is that only as you look at death fully in the face will you live fully in life. And there's a direct relationship between the two. And because uh, then it forces us to look beyond to God and to seize the day as we live it today. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. I want you to go to chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. I want to make a few comments. And uh, I want to kind of lead you on a little meditation of death. And then I want to make two applications this morning. So I know this is not the average Christmas message that you may have been expecting. But it really does provide a backdrop for great joy at this season. All right? Chapter 11, verse 7. He writes, light, light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything is to come is meaningless. So he, he begins by just talking about how life is, life is sweet, and there's a lot of good in life, and, and, and enjoy it, but, but that, that, that enthusiasm for life is tempered for him by the awareness of, he calls it darkness. Let him remember the days of darkness, there will be many. He's referring to death, which is coming. And um, enjoy your life, but remember, death is coming to all of us. The future hangs like a dark cloud. And then he goes on, go to chapter 12, verse 1. I want, to read, I want to read and make some comments about the first seven verses here. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, I want you to notice this. If you're young here today, uh, it's kind of implied here that it's more difficult to establish a relationship with God when you're older. Not that it can't be done, obviously. But we think, we think deathbed conversions happen all the time. They do not happen all the time. But it's implied here that it is easier to remember God and get your life right with God now when you're young than when you are older. That's what he says here. Remember God when you are young, your creator. Remember, meditate on death when you're a teenager. That's your calling. Now he goes on. He gives all these, he gives actually three big metaphors or images here. Remember the creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. So here's what he does. He, he, he begins by likening growing older. Old age, as it approaches, hits all of us. It's like a coming storm. It's like a storm is coming down the horizon as you grow older, and there's nothing you can do to stop it as you grow older. 
Then it goes on in verse 3. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. Now what he begins to do now, he takes a second metaphor. goes, growing older, look what happens as people approach death. And he takes some different types of people. The keepers of the house would be kind of like uh, security people in the house, the, the wardens in the house, the, the servants who are working in the house. He goes, now they, the keepers of the house, they tremble as they approach death, as they look at the great abyss. And then he goes on in verse uh, 3, and the strong men stoop, no matter how strong you are in life, physically, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how powerful you are, as you approach death, it will cause you to, to bend over. It'll break you. Think of Ronald Reagan today, most powerful man in the world when he was president of the United States. You know what? We all know he's, he's dying of Alzheimer's. And, you know, he is very weak because old age and death, for all of us in this room, as we approach it, it will break us. And we will all be equally weak in that process. And then he gives another example. He goes, and those, and when the grinders cease because they are few. And grinders refers to women who would, who would grind uh, the flour in homes so they could, you know, make flour and eat. And he goes, the grinders will also come to a time when they won't grind anymore. Their energies will be shot and they will cease. And those looking through the windows, verse 3, grow dim. And most scholars believe it's referring to wealthy women who are looking out the windows in a life of leisure. And it goes, even their eyesight, as they look, their eyesight will go at the end of their days and they will no longer be able to see as they approach death. And then it goes on. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. As you grow older, you no longer can even hear the birds sing outside your window because your ears, are, your, 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 your hearing goes. And then he goes on. When men are afraid of heights, verse 5, and of dangers in the streets. Elderly people don't like to go out in the streets late at night. To be elderly and frail as you grow older, it's not easy to live in a place like New York City and take the 7 train and walk down to the E train at Roosevelt or in Times Square to do those steps when you're elderly. And he says, they're afraid to go out at night, afraid of the heights. And then he goes on, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about in the street. And uh, they die. And then he gives this third image here, not just of a storm and not just of people living in a house, all that grow old and die. He gives an image of now a bunch of these precious objects, at least in the first century, when this was written uh, before Christ. And he says, remember him, verse 6, remember God. That's his, remember him. That's your decision. Before the silver cord is severed. Now, silver cords were used for embroidery. That's the, that'd be the most precious thread. It goes, the day comes when you're, if, you're, if your life is precious like silver cord, you're cut. And it's over. And then he goes on. Or the golden bowl is broken. Your life is precious like a golden bowl. The day comes, it's, it's broken up. It's useless. Or the pitcher is shattered at the spring. Think of a spring or a well, and you've got this, this pitcher. It goes down and brings the water up. Your life is, is precious. It's like a pitcher. He goes, the day comes, that pitcher shattered, useless, gone, dust. And then, or the wheel broken at the well. You're no longer able to produce or work or do anything. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Dust returns to dust, the day when everybody dies. Your flesh, everybody, just like my flesh, is headed to the ground where it will mesh with worms. And we will all be dust. That's what Ecclesiastes lays before us here in this room. 
that we each are headed to that earthly destiny. And uh, now, I know it's not the most exciting thought you've had in a while, but according to one Harvard professor, Nathan Kaywitz, 85 billion people have lived on the earth since the beginning of time. And 85 billion people have died. You will die. You will go on the ground. A year will pass, five years will pass, 50 years will pass, 100 years will pass. And you will be forgotten in an earthly sense. Now, right now, there's 6 billion people alive about. That means that for every live person on the earth, there's 20 of us who are dead. They outnumber us big time. And there's nothing that any of us can do to evade that reality. And what Ecclesiastes says, part of the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord is to meditate and pause on the fact that you will die. And you have no control over the day that that will happen. That is completely in the hands of God. But rest assured of this, whether it's early or late, you will die. And the, in eternity sense of the word, your life on earth is very, very, very brief. So some of us die quickly uh, through historical events and tragedies. Others of us, it's very slow. But for example, and the first emperor of China was a guy named Emperor Qin. I don't know if I'm saying it right, Q-I-N. He lived 2,200 years ago. After one battle that he emerged victorious, he took 400,000 prisoners. He killed them all in one day. Stalin, in the former Soviet Union, killed at least 20 million of his own people. In communist China, under Mao, during that great leap forward in the 60s, it's estimated that in three years, he killed 30 million of his own people. The bubonic plague, when it hit Europe in the 1300s, killed 25 million Europeans. And the same bubonic plague hit Asia in 1894, they estimate that 13 million people died. And one day, in Bangladesh, in April 30th, 1991, a tidal wave hit that country. In one day, 138,000 people died. Staggering, isn't it? Just staggering. Now, here's the thesis of this message here, that we cannot experience the fullness of life unless we face squarely and honestly the reality of death. That's the thesis of Revelation, I mean, of, of Ecclesiastes. Because we all have a great fear of death, a great terror of death, although very few people are even conscious of it. And so what happens, it's so terrifying, this thought of, of dying. This terror of death or this dread of death that we end up repressing our anxiety in a lot of different ways. I mean, and in fact, I agree with many great thinkers, philosophers and theologians and psychologists would all say that number one repression is the reality of death. People find ways to repress it in so many complex ways. In fact, I actually read a book called The Denial of Death the last couple of weeks by Becker, tremendous book. And he goes into tremendous detail into worldwide how folks, how we develop these enormous defenses against the truth of death. And right after he wrote the book, he died. I got nervous reading it, actually. So what we do, I mean, we, we, one of the things we do, I know uh, in the West, we just don't talk about it very much. You know, we, we try not, it's the topic we, we don't want to really chat about. I mean, it's, oh, it's too depressing, I, I don't want to go there. Or, or we get ourselves, we're very busy, we don't have time to think about it. I mean, when someone, I mean, we ship death away into funeral parlors, you know, it's very, it, it, it's antiseptically, you know, very clean, and we, you know, we pop in, we get out. I mean, someone dies, we say, get busy, get busy, don't think about it. And I've done many funerals and wakes over the years. 
And I'm very aware, people pause before death for about you know, five minutes, as long as I speak. And once that funeral's over, everyone's busy and running around, and, and, uh, and that's, that's the whole theme. I mean, even the medical profession now is doing everything to keep people alive. And it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible, this, this, this and you get a sign, it's, it's not easy to die in a hospital today. If you're, if you're in a medical profession, you know, it's very hard to die, because they don't, they don't you know, they're trying to get off. We do, we do everything to ward off old age. Plastic surgery, you know plastic surgery, the biggest growing uh, segment is for teenagers. They're doing plastic surgery like crazy, teenagers. But it's a booming profession because nobody wants to grow old. Everyone's fighting it, the reality of growing old and dying. Uh, think of war. The reason they, they recruit young men and now young women to go into war, because who's going to get up out of a trench and go into fire, into, into enemy fire, machine guns? Think of World War I. Tens of thousands of young men in World War I would get out of these trenches and go forward into a volley of machine guns and artillery because they didn't think, they thought, I'm not going to die. This guy might die, or he, she might, I'm not going to die. And they found that they were very wrong. But that's why they recruit young people to go to war, because there's a sense, I'm immortal, I'll live forever. And they find out they're not. I mean, even, even and I, I, it's been discussed, and I, I think it's some truth in it, part of the reason that we, we, we like heroes, and we, we, we project onto a movie star or some famous person, because we think that they'll be immortal. They won't be stuck with limits, and then when they die like a Princess Diana, everyone's flipping out because they transferred this sense of, they'll never die, I'm not gonna, if I'm tied to them, I won't die either. It's kind of like this, this, this way of repressing it, not thinking about it. I mean, folks who run from relationship to relationship, looking for another companion, part of what that's all about is, I don't want to be alone. I could die, so let me have another affair, or another relationship that's filled with passion, so that I don't feel so desperately alone, because it reminds me feel like I'm gonna die. And so we look for ways to medicate ourselves against their terror, and I'm using the word terror with, with purpose, the terror of death. And let me ask you, have you really sat in it, the fact that you will die, and you have no control over that? Zero about the day, the moment, and the way that you will die. But rest assured of this, of the 85 billion people who have died so far, you will not evade that destiny for yourself. You too will go in the ground and become dust. Dust. No matter what coffin you buy, you will be dust. The New York Times had an article recently called The Psychology of Shopping. How much is that death denial in the window? And the argument was that the reason we buy so many things is we want to feel like if I get more and more things, I'll keep living. Like that emperor who built all those clay soldiers that excavated thousands so that when he died, they would watch over him in the afterlife. Sorry, Emperor, it didn't work. Like the pyramids didn't work either. But all of it, he's saying, whether you go after education and you say, I'm, I'm going to get so smart, I'm going to get really powerful, I'm going to get really rich, I'm going to leave a legacy, I'm going to leave buildings or money or stuff, monuments to myself, it's all an illusion. Ecclesiastes says, you are racing to old age and death and nothing you can do can stop it. And uh, no matter how much of a structure you build around yourself to avoid this reality, and you may live in a lie that it's not happening, but like a storm, it's coming to all of us. And if you're young, Ecclesiastes says, you had better think about it now, not later, because it's even more difficult to think about it when you grow older if you avoided it your whole life. Because this is the reason, as we'll see in a few minutes, that our lives are not authentic, not true to what God has for us. 
because we've built up defenses and mechanisms to lie to ourselves about what is true. And what is true is you and I are going to be dust. We will live our short lives on earth and we will die. And Ecclesiastes is the one philosophy book in the Bible saying, I want you to think about it. A wise woman or a wise man thinks about this, meditates on it, and then enters to live life. Now there's two applications, and let's go make them now, and uh, to this text. And the first is going to be found in verse 1, and also in verse 6. It says, remember. Remember God. The remember your creator in the days of your youth. And verse 6, remember him. Now again, if you don't have God and you think about death, you will despair and get very depressed. And many existentialists have committed suicide over this as they really reflected on the, on the horrificness of it. But we, on the other hand, are folks who live in truth and we don't despair because we know our God's alive. But he, does, he starts by saying, remember your creator. And that God made you with a design, with a purpose. He's got his hand in your life. And he made you for himself to live in a relationship with him and to live for him. Now, what this is, is a call to stop being so self-sufficient like you're in control of life. And to drop that pretense. And it's a call to maturity of the fact that you have enormous limitations. You have enormous boundaries around your life. And that is the fact that your life will end, and it is very brief. And so you remember your creator, because you know what? It's possible to be a believer in Jesus and forget God. We can function like atheists. We forget him. We live like there is no God. Like anything that's going to happen is because I'll make it happen. For example, what's your dream for your future? Every time I hear a believer in Jesus say, my dream for the future, Pete, is to retire, to live comfortably. I grieve. And I said, I, I, because if that's, the, if that's the extent of your hope and dream for the future, you are really no different than an atheist. Think for a minute with me about your talents and what do you do with your talents and the gifts God's given you and, your, and, and, and some of the things he's put on you. Do you bury them out of fear? What will happen if I step out and use them for God and live out the life God has for me? Well, that's what everybody else does. So you're functioning really like an atheist. Or think for a second with me of if you're single here and you're in a relationship with somebody and you like him or her and you realize this person's killing your spiritual life. This person's no good for you. But you say, if I lose him or if I lose her, I'll be alone forever. The question is, are you remembering your creator or forgetting him? To remember your creator says, all right, God, I really would like to hold on to this person just in case, but I'm going to trust you that you say, if I seek first your kingdom, everything else will be added on to me. And so I'm going to trust you with my life, and I'm going to live it not like a functional atheist. I'm going to remember you, O oh God. I mean, let's take, let's take, you know, having a vision for people's lives. You, know, you, you ever look at, people, look at people and say, this person will never change, you write them off. That's an atheist. Remembering God means I look at you and I say, you know what, they haven't changed in 25 years, but God's alive. I'm going to pray for them that God would do a work in their hearts. Parenting with children, same thing. I mean, I, as a parent, I can sit there being anxious. Oh, my kids, what's going to happen? And I do. Remembering God means I'm going to pray for my kids. And that's the most important thing I can do for my children, that God will watch out for them as they move through life. But it's very easy to live as a parent, as a Christian parent, and function as an atheist and forget God. Because I look at everybody else around me, and they're all frantic about their kids. 
Let's take money. Core issue, isn't it? The way you deal with your money, do you function like an atheist? You live as if you're in control of everything. So you know what? You hold on to it. You're afraid. You hoard it. And God says, I wouldn't know you're a believer any different than anybody else. Would you're, if we had a magnifying glass and we were examining you and the folks around you who do not believe in God or don't believe in Jesus Christ, would there be any difference? Is there in your life a different way you're living the fact of God's alive? Or are you functioning like you're an atheist? So when he says, remember your creator, he's getting down and dirty, saying the way you live your life is based on not anxiety, but the promises of God. That his word is true and it endures forever, and you bank your life on it. So all those verses, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, the most prominent command in all of scripture. The reason God says do not fear thousands of times in the Bible, because he knows we're afraid to remember him. We're afraid to trust him with all of our heart. And so we've got to step over fear, encourage each other, say, you know what? Bank on God. And that's what the church is. That's what we're here for each other, to encourage that you can do it. Trust the promise of God. He will not let you down. But remember your creator. Because, listen, as we go out there every day, people are not remembering their creator. They walk and live like they've got control of everything. They'll live forever. And if anything happens, they get angry and bitter. How dare God do such a thing to me and cause me to grow old and die. But this is a decision to make. And it's, I'm, I'm, really, I want to call you, as this, this author is doing in verse 1, it's a command in Hebrew. Remember, don't forget your creator. So are you living your life, your marriage, your single life, as if God's alive? Or are you living as if God's dead? And you don't even believe in him. So that's the first application. All right, so hold on to that. Because the second one flows out of the first. And that is to seize the day. Carpe deum. It's a Greek it's a Latin phrase that means seize the day. Because there's a, a theme in, in Ecclesiastes, and, and I don't have time to show you all the verses, but it's all through Ecclesiastes from chapter 1 through chapter 12. And it is, yes, be aware of death, the fact that your days are finite and limited. But at the same time, verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 11, for example, say, however many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. And there's a call to to enjoy the pleasures of life. The gifts that God gives are meant to be enjoyed. We are not people, Christians, we are not to be the people who are like, oh, you know, legalistic, depressed all the time. You know, life is constricted. God says, no, all of, the, everything that's good in creation is my gift. And we're to live every day as a holy day and we seize it. It's a great expression, seize the day, the moment. Not, don't live in the past and don't live in the future. Live in the now, in the present, and seize it. And live the life that God's called you to live. I like what Wendell Berry says. It's possible to spend your whole life enjoying a single tree. There's so much beauty and awesomeness in the creation of a tree by God that you can spend your life never exhausting it. Some of you know the poet William Blake. He said, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. It's seizing the day and enjoying the gifts of God in life. Some of you know the, the, the movie Dead Poet Society with um, Robin Williams. He plays an English teacher that goes to a, an upper class prep school. And uh, this prep school is filled with all of these rich kids from wealthy families. And their families all have 
they're, the kids like scripted for them. They're going to be lawyers, doctors, politicians, go to, you know, all that stuff. And, and they're under, the kids are under tremendous pressure to live the life that their parents have for them. And the school is very authoritarian, very strict. The kids study like crazy. And Robert, Robert Williams comes in and gets a job as an English professor. And he starts teaching the kids poetry and to think and to feel. And he, actually, the first thing he says is, see, carpe diem, he quotes some, you know, some poets. And he starts telling the kids that, that no, you are, he, does, he actually uses the line, he goes, you are dust, you are going to die, but make your life extraordinary. Come alive and listen to, listen to what's, what are you passionate about? And he gets them to love poetry and think for themselves. And he goes, suck the marrow out of life and live in the present. And these kids start coming alive. And one kid realizes, I don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be an actor. And I, I love music. And you know, they're just coming alive. And, and it's this conflict that goes on between the old established order in the school, who've been there for many, many years, decades, and Robin Williams and these kids who are coming alive, who are seizing the day. And it ends, watch the movie. It's a good movie. And, um, but he eventually gets kicked out of the school. There's no room for him. And the same way we are called as believers, we seize the day. We grab it. And we enjoy the gifts of God. For example, it's snowing today. Still snowing out? Wow, still snowing out. You know what? Snow is it just blankets the earth. It's a very beautiful thing. I seize the day. As I look around the room and I look at, you know, I, I, I look at Carol or I look at Pam. I don't say, oh, everything Pam isn't this and Pam isn't that and Pam is, you know. I say, no, I, I, seize, I, I, I thank God for who you are as something extraordinary made in the image of God. And I'm present with the person versus frustrated for everything they're not. I go and I can smell a flower, look at the sun, or look at the moon, or look at the stars, and, and, I, and I can seize the day and embrace the beauty of life. There's a great book that was written by a, a French man many, many decades ago called The Sacrament of the Present Moment. That every moment in life is a sacrament. It's holy. And we make a choice whether we receive it or whether we just reject it because we're not even aware of it. We're living life like we're going to live forever, so we don't appreciate what we've got. I love this one woman I read recently. She was, she was dying of cancer. Terminally ill cancer patients, I am told, I don't work with cancer patients, are the most alive people on earth because they seize the day, because they recognize their days are numbered. And she said she, she lost her ability to swallow because she had cancer of the esophagus. And she, when she went to some friends over the dinner table, she says, and, and I don't know if they're talking about it, someone was complaining about something. And she says, do you realize that you can swallow, that you can thank God that you could swallow? I mean, how many of us thank God that we can swallow? We just take it for granted, like, of course, I'll live forever. Like, we're in control of life. No, remember God and seize the moment in the day and say, I thank you, Lord. It's a way of looking at life that, that the world is not half empty. It's half full. And we're not complaining and grumbling that everything is not. What about this? I say, I'm actually able to seize the day and thank God for every gift that's around me. Even though I recognize that death is down the corner. I'm aware of that. But it's that awareness of death that makes life alive. And that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. That's the way of wisdom. We as believers don't run from the fact that we will be dust. Genesis 3, all will die as a result of sin. Now, if you know Jesus, you will live forever. But earthly death is a frightening prospect. Our extinction on earth as we know it. It's pretty heavy to face it head on and not live a lie like it's not going to happen. But to suck the marrow of life, what an invitation. The Talmud says this. Every man must render account before God of all the good things he beheld in life 
and did not enjoy. The great rabbi said that. I'll read it again. Every man, these rabbis taught, must render accounts before God for all the good things he beheld in life and did not enjoy. Think of all the good things that passed through your life. You don't enjoy them at all because you're uptight and angry about something else as if you're God and it just goes passing by. Think of all, I, I, honestly, I was very present with the music today, you know. Music is such a gift. Just to be present with music, to lift our hearts and souls to heaven. I mean, what a, where would that come from except from God? How it just moves, it just moves me, my heart, my emotions. It's unbelievable. So it says in, as it says in, um, as David wrote in Psalm 39, show me, O Lord, my life's end. Can you pray that prayer with David? No, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Remember, God says a thousand years are like a day, a day like a thousand years in God's sight. That's why he says the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, teach me, Lord, to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach me, O Lord, to number my days aright, that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Because you know what? Number your days, because they are numbered, and God's got a number for you. But part of what this is about, friends, is many of us have had a lot of pain in life, whether it's from sin or shame or guilt, and you know what? I'm no good. I'm not entitled. We have such a difficult time enjoying the pleasure of life. I was one of them. I came from a very, very broken upbringing. No one enjoyed anything growing up. It's not the family I came from. But I want you to hear this. The gospel, the, 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 the scriptures call us of a deep awareness of our finiteness, of the shortness of our lives, and really carpe diem, to, 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 to seize the moment that it's really sacramental and to come out of this complaining, bitterness, comparing, grumpiness, always coveting, and to walk in a contentment, not that we don't have goals, but we walk in that really, that sacrament of that present moment when every good thing comes by, we grab it and we say, thank you, God. And we actually live life. We don't just run through life busy. We live it and we squeeze it for its beauty. What a way to relate to people. Try it. It will change your life. And so, what I'd like to do is, I would like, pull out this sheet here, okay? Mine's yellow. Is yours yellow? Okay. Pull out your wish basket and epitaph. Now, I believe that believers who are joyless, legalistic, defensive, like, I saw Christians before I became a Christian my whole life. I said, why would I want to be a Christian and have no joy in life? That was the, I, I, when I met Christians, I wanted to run away. I said, I'm going to have fun in life, then I'll get saved before I die. Because I did not think of Christians as people who squeeze the marrow out of life. But I want you to hear what Ecclesiastes says. That is a true wise believer. Because we know how short it is, and we know that our days are numbered. And God is the creator, and we remember him. So we don't, even the hard times, we squeeze those too.
the winter months, and we absorb what God has for us. Here's what I want you to do. Does anybody need a pen? Raise your hands. If you do, raise your hand, and we'll get you one. Okay. I want you to fill this out. I'm going to give you a few minutes. Worship team, come on forward. And I want you to start up here. Here lies. And put your name there, first of all. Now, this exercise is, can have a powerful effect of helping you increase your pleasure in life. And what you're going to do is you're going to write... Oh, oh sorry. Oh, no. Let's go this way. Oh, no. Oh, well... Can you find it, Michael? All right. You have this in front of you. And on the bottom is what I call a wish basket. And the wish basket is what do you want to do or accomplish or be before you die? And I want you to begin to write some things down of what you'd like to do or be before you die. And because most of us, we live our lives as if we're going to live forever. What I'm trying to do right now is force you to pause and think of what is it that you want to do or be or accomplish before you die and start writing it in that wish basket. I'm going to give you a couple minutes of silence. Thanks, Michael. My goal is not to depress you, but actually my goal is to get you to seize the day. And the Bible teaches that unless you look squarely, honestly, at death, Ecclesiastes argues that you will not seize the day fully. That you need that backdrop to do it. That limitation. So you want to think now of your priorities and your values and your commitments. And actually, I did this uh, about a year ago, and I've done it once since. And I carry it around in my journal because I find myself sometimes living a life that I cannot read mine, okay? I find myself living a life that is not what I really want before God. And so I've done it a couple of times. So I'm going to give you like five minutes right now. And the worship team is going to lead us in a song. And as they're singing, don't sing with them. Just be before God and fill this out. Now I know for some of you, you say, I don't want to do this. I know. But let's be doers of the word and not just hearers. And what I'm saying to you is that you need to think about what has God scripted for your life? What's really important for you? Because it may be that you're living a life that God never intended. And you probably are spending a lot of time and energy on things that you realize, I don't really want to be doing this. Okay? So the worst thing is going to lead us. Please do it, even though it's reflective and maybe a little painful or difficult. And fill us in. Oh.